You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, I wanted to touch on something that you and I have never chatted about, Gaussian processes. Let's start me off with a definition. Ah, okay. So Gaussian processes. So let's start with the word process. Mm -hmm. Um, Because um, my understanding of the origin of that is actually it's in a deterministic process, as in a process of things that go through some series of operations. Mm. Uh, And stochastic processes are sort of things that are a series of operations with random outcomes. I think we can... I don't know if the word process is that helpful because it's like... Actually, um, Magnus Ratra, a friend of mine, used to say, oh, well, there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's image processing, speech processing, and Gaussian processing. You know, these are the major ways. And it's not, <laughs> it's not really process. It doesn't feel like the word process is being used in the same sense. It's, um, and, and, and actually, mentally, when I hear it, I just kind of think of function, actually. And a deterministic mm. process would be a, a mathematical function, meaning functions overloaded as well. Stochastic process is kind of, loosely speaking, a sort of random function. And a Gaussian process is, I mean, when you do these random functions, you get issues around uh, tractability. So, so it's a very powerful framework to have a way of specifying a distribution we can think of, or we can think of a process as a sort of distribution over random functions. Mm. And that's powerful for a number of reasons, one of which is within the framework of Bayesian inference. It mm-hmm. allows you to encapsulate your beliefs about functions within a probabilistic framework, mm. and then you can combine them with data and obtain a posterior belief about functions. So that's the sort of Bayesian approach to learning. So this is a sort of very attractive idea that you might be able to capture all your beliefs about a set of functions in a distribution. Now, the downside is is tractability. So, you know, I, I think I've said before on Talking Machines that the, the landscape of maths is only has these very narrow paths over it of maths that actually we can do tractably. That's why we all end up doing the same maths, sort of linear algebra and these sort of things. So there's all the things we'd like to do, but we can never go that way. So we're always mm. traveling on these things that are sort of analytic, tractable. And Gaussian processes, one of the two, what I think of as the two, mentally, I think, well, there's two broad ways we get tractability. One is sort of Markov processes, and one is Gaussian processes. So Mm. Markov processes are things where we define at a function, and we typically think of in Markov processes a function over time as a distribution over the initial state of the function. And then we have some distribution, sort of transition distribution that says, what our state moving forward in time is. And a Markov chain is a discrete example of that. So we sort of say at different time steps we relate. So we might be in, have two states, state naught or one, and then we have a transition probability. We've got initial probability over naught and one over the initial states. And then as we move forward, we define a probability of staying in state one, a probability of staying in state zero, or a probability of flipping state. And you can actually do that. That's a discrete setup, but you can do that. You can sort of turn that into a continuous function by using all the sort of limit tricks. And you can get Markov processes, which um, sometimes Markov jump processes, where you're, you, you have functions that move along and then they make jumps. And these are, these are relatively tractable systems, quite widely studied in physics. And they're sort of uniquely determined by this initial state and these transition distributions. So that's not a a Gaussian process, but a Gaussian process is an alternative way of representing a function where instead of um, 
representing it with initial state and transition, you decide that any finite number of points from your function. So you, a function, we can think of a function of it as an infinite vector. So mm. let's go back to that Markov chain example. So if I wanted to generate a finite vector of ones and zeros, I could use that little way of generating by let's start with a probability of zero or one, let's say it's 50, 50. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, I can generate in an ongoing way by having probabilities. The next element of the vector is one with probability 0.2. It's zero with probability 0.8, given we're one now and some other distribution. So you can see I can generate a finite vector. Now, of course, if I've got that transition probability, I can generate an infinite vector. So that's like a discrete function. It can go on and on forever. So we've, we've clearly got some way of generating probability distributions over infinite length things. Now, um, in the continuous case, you're then taking limits where the sort of gaps between these discrete observations is reduced to zero. Now, there's a lot of theory around that. There's a lot of work, difficult mathematical work from Cole McGrath. There's, there's martingales. There's all these, there's these conversations about measures. Very important mathematical work, very widely studied probability. Mostly not relevant for what we do with these things in machine learning at all. Hmm. Mostly in machine learning, you can kind of say, someone's shown that this is a valid way to think about this. This works pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yes. There's some complex maths, which shows me it's okay, right? And in, so in a Gaussian process, you sort of say, well, I'm going to have realizations from a function that I'm just going to say are jointly Gaussian distributed. So meaning, and often we use a zero mean Gaussian. For simplicity, we can use a zero mean Gaussian. You, you can also use a non-zero mean Gaussian. But, you know, it, it, actually, all the interesting bit is, is in the so-called covariance function, the covariance of this object not so much the mean, um, which is unusual. Most people think of Gaussians, they think, oh, there's a mean and that's the thing I'm interested in and there's some variance which represents the noise. So one, one challenge I think people have with Gaussian processes, there's two challenges. One, I think that there's a lot of unconscious bias against the word Gaussian. Mm. I think as soon as you say Gaussian, people constantly say, oh, but that's Gaussian. So there's, you know, but, and then they describe the method they're doing and it's a special case of a Gaussian process. So they say, no, that's Gaussian, so I didn't want to use it, so I'm using a common filter. Okay, that's a type of Gaussian process. You know, or I'm using, you know, if you're using, if there's a bunch of stuff, like a lot of signal processing, classical signal processing can be shown to be Gaussian process fits. So when, when you think of the Gaussian process, instead of specifying the initial state, the transition, you specify a mean function, a covariance function. So let's take the mean function to be zero. The covariance function the way you can think about this, and, and you should try this at home, uh, you create the covariance matrix and you just take one sample from that Gaussian. So the covariance matrix is, you know, let's say 25 dimensional. And mm -hmm. if you take one sample from a covariance matrix with a particular structure and you get 25 points out and then you plot them, you see something that looks like a function. And, and the point in a Gaussian process is what you say is, well, it doesn't matter. So, so that's nice that you can do that, but that's a finite system. And in the Gaussian process, what you then have to show is that you can take any subset of samples from this function and that they'll always be jointly Gaussian distributed. Nice. And you create the covariance matrix using what's called a covariance function. So the way you do it is you say, let's say I want samples at the discrete times we talked about the Markov process at time zero, time one, time two, time three, time four, time five. You have a covariance function, which is a bivariate function. It takes two inputs, in this case, the two times. And it typically expresses the covariance 
as a function of the distance between those two points. So closer points are highly correlated, mm -hmm. and then it says correlation drops away often as the distance increases. Uh, typically in these stationary processes, you do that. And that approach allows you to sort of, this what should be an infinite dimensional object, this sort of joint covariance over these infinitely, uncountably infinitely many points, you can express just as a simple function of two variables. Um, and very classically, uh, it turns out that these functions, people know about kernel methods, the class of functions you use is the same as the class of functions that you use in kernel methods. So there's this mm. very tight relationship between the two. And so they're sort of complex things because it's, they're, they're different. Well, they sound like complex things because that's not the classical way we would talk about, say, you know, the neural network introduction or a, a standard IID model. You sort of say, well we're going to assume all our samples are independent. And what I'm basically saying here is, no, all the samples are correlated. They're jointly Gaussian correlated between each other. And we're going to specify what that correlation looks like, which is different to the way you normally do machine learning. And I think it takes people a while to get their heads around it. But it's elegant and mathematically very nice to analyze and, and quite a powerful framework because you can do sort of nonlinear functions. Fantastic. Well, we'll have more about Gaussian processes on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's question on talking machines relates to getting into graduate school. I'm interested in applying to graduate school to focus on machine learning, but the competition is incredibly stiff. How do I solve the paradox of needing to have a NIPS paper in order to get into graduate school? Thanks so much. Neil, what do you think? Sort of the, the needing to have coffee before being able to make coffee paradox. Yeah, I mean, I must say, I don't envy at all people who are trying to get into the field now and the challenges. I, I was uh, here in Cambridge uh, a couple of months ago looking at the masters, the MPhil they have in machine learning at the engineering department here, looking at the quality of the projects that these students were producing. And it just, to me, it's like, these are extraordinary pieces of work and they'd only spent like four weeks on it or something. Oh, <laughs> it's like, yeah, so at the very best level, in the very best courses, there's a lot of competition. And I think it must be very intimidating to be in amongst that. Actually, I was speaking with um, a professor from the university here uh, uh, about um, imposter syndromes about these things you know mm. a lot of people have imposter syndromes in this space and, and, and that's not a help as well I mean let's face it it's silly the idea that you need a NIPS paper to go to graduate school I mean that's just silly <laughs> is that's it, how isn't graduate school about teaching you how to write the NIPS paper right like isn't that sort of supposed to be part of it I mean I think so precisely and I think that look if if we're only going to get I think it's brilliant I mean there are some amazing people around there's some and and it's amazing if people manage to do this as undergraduates or through master's programs to, to get papers out. And some people do. It's certainly not the be-all and end-all of your career if you can't manage to do that. I certainly couldn't have done that as an undergraduate. Absolutely not. I didn't have the skill set. And, and, and it's probably, I don't know, it's probably easier. My first tips paper, I did get fairly early in my PhD, but it was probably easier then. And I struggled to publish during, mm. you know, much stuff during my PhD. I don't know. If anything, I, I have less confidence that I could about a given paper, whether I could publish it at NIPS today. I kind of have an instinctive feeling, but, you know, about the papers we produce as a group. But 
I mean, I think that it's only the there's, there's certain graduate schools where that is true. It, it can't mm. be true of all graduate schools. There's certainly um, opportunity. I mean, if maybe if you you're really going for the the sort of biggest name supervisors, the the largest graduate schools, then then that's what you're faced with. You're also faced with actually a pretty stressful PhD, not often because the supervisor makes it so, but because your fellow students are so amazing. And right. I think that can be really. I've seen, you know, when I was, I visited some of the top, particularly U.S. universities and seen the atmosphere amongst the Ph.D. students. The faculty seemed kind of relaxed, but the Ph.D. students <laughs> really tense about where they're going to get their faculty out. positions and where they're going because they're all so high achieving. That it's, it's good to be stirred on in that way. I mean, there's a positive side to it, but it's also, um, it's also pretty tough. But like you say, with uh, around imposter syndrome, you sort of find yourself painted into that corner when you lose faith in your own ability, in like your own quote unquote taste, right? Your own ability to see things that are interesting or to ask good questions. So maybe finding just a way that you can demonstrate that you are curious enough and that that curiosity in you, that drive is sustainable and like can't be sated, right? Because that's what you're going to be asked to do in graduate school is to think deeply about something until you can find something new or interesting or surprising yeah. about it, right? Like simply finding a different way to express that or demonstrate that capability, I think would go a long way to, to helping you, you know, woo a PI. Yeah, I think, I think that the one thing that, I mean, it's different in the US and the UK because the US, you, you're sort of doing your you do the first year and then you take a qualifying exam and you often yes. choose your supervisor in the UK in theory is three years, three or four years. So it's a bit shorter. The relationship with supervisor is often very important. Hmm. When you say like the curiosity, how do you sustain that curiosity? I was talking with a, a very brilliant colleague the other day and with, he was talking about his early career and he, he said, well, what this, his graduate school did, which was one of the major schools, is it knocked all his intuition out of him. Because, <laughs> because, oh, no. because it's sort of like the army, how it tries to knock you down and build you up right, as a new person. Right. And I thought, oh, crumbs. <laughs> I sometimes think that, that people who are successful long term, they're not necessarily the most technical. There's some people who just by sheer force of technical amazingness um, mm -hmm can drive through but but it's almost like your technical ability is almost like a minimum threshold you have to get over and uh, mm. you shouldn't worry too much about other people being technically ahead of you because when you get through certain things and over time it becomes more important your understanding of the wider field or your sense of direction and stuff mm -hmm. that are less important mm -hmm. early on in your phd where your supervisor is guiding you so in some sense your long-term success is defined i would say often by very different parameters as your early initial success so mm. the person who it's brilliant you know they're clearly they're doing great if you get a nips paper before graduate school it doesn't guarantee by any but, means a massively successful career in the field but so, by the by the same token, it, it, it's a pretty, you know, if, if you're selecting students and someone's got one, you're not going uh, to, you're not right. going to, well, I'll ignore that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, maybe the best advice is to sort of like not worry about what other people are doing and do what you feel like is going to help you shine the most, right? Like, can't worry about it. if somebody else has a paper in NIPS as an undergraduate, you know, maybe they helped out with some research or they helped organize something, their name is on it, but maybe that's not the place where you can show off your talents to your best advantage. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, 
I mean, Karina and I did the NIPS experiment. We mm-hmm, we showed mm-hmm. it was like 50-50 on yeah. consistency. And, you know, right. whatever people have done since then, I think that's kind of fundamental. It doesn't mean yeah. like if you, you know, the, it, I mean, some NIPS papers get accepted. So there's, even if you got that paper, I mean, unless you were submitting 10, right. you know, that that's still luck, right? Yeah. It, to some extent, often. I mean, the, the very best papers are actually pretty consistent, but the... So, so, the, so that's like saying, well, I have to win a lottery ticket to get, and, and maybe to some extent you do. But there are many other routes. There's good people around who I just had colleagues down from the University of Glasgow, really good people up there doing super interesting work. It's probably not in the first top 10 that people would write down as the leading uh, graduate schools. But, you know, this was Rod Murray Smith, who's a great guy with some amazing ideas and you know a really good student Francesco we had visiting so you just you know, it just shows you you know that there's opportunity everywhere and you may have to be creative but the key thing you know if you are only driven by I must be at this university and I must uh, be working on this thing otherwise you know I'll not be successful you're probably setting yourself up for failure yeah yeah. Just because you're going right, you're not necessarily driven for the passion of what you're interested in doing. You're going right into the heart of it and saying, let me be like, you know, at the hottest point because I want that to define me. Right. Rather than I want to really work on X or Y. Yeah. You know, I mean, I came into machine learning really wanting to solve applications, actually, not thinking I could do much algorithmically. And I ended up moving to algorithms. But, but certainly my. You know, I, I do applications a lot, but I ended up getting much more in-depth into algorithms than I ever thought, just because I realized over time I was passionate about it, not because I thought, oh, I, you know, these guys are all idiots and I can do something they can't. In fact, I thought exactly the opposite. But I just found as I got more and more interested and more and more passionate about it, I came up with things that people I respected thought were interesting. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, was the greatest ever. That was more important to me than any publication. That was, like, the best thing ever when I had a small group of people around me who I really respected, and then I would say things and they wouldn't tell me I was an idiot. (laughs) So you really have to, you have to build your own definition because if you're working from outside definitions, those aren't going to be enough to sustain you through like a change of ideas around who you are or who yourself is or what, what that, you know, what you're trying to achieve through your work or through your ideas or like even as fundamental as like who you want to be or how you define yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's right. And of course, the situation is different for people across the world. So, you know, of course. Right. Um, yeah. and, and how what people can expect to do and expect to achieve. I think that if you've carried a project from one end to another and are thoughtful and descriptive about it, that's just fantastic. If you mm-hmm. can. So, so go ahead and do that. And, and learn something and, and be curious and and try and take something all the way to the end and be skeptical. Skepticism about your own work is the sort of thing that mm. is that I find most missing in young researchers, that they always see the positives. So be skeptical about your own work and be reflective like that. And then, uh, you know, if you do get a chance to interview at the, at the top places, you'll, you'll come across as that. It's true that there might be a high technical threshold for the top places, but then, you know, once you're interviewing there, that they'll be uh, curious to see what kind of research you are as well, yeah. and and we can all we can all do that. You don't you know you don't have to choose the most technical project in the world to to deliver to carry something that demonstrates your curiosity to the end. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail dot com or tweet us at tlkngmchns. 
This week's guest on Talking Machines is Richard Semmel. He's research director at the Vector Institute and a professor at the University of Toronto. And when we got a chance to sit down with him at the CIFAR Summer School, which was co-hosted by Vector, we asked him the first question we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? Okay, so I've had a lifelong interest in artificial intelligence. Actually, in high school, I had a neighbor who I got to know, whose name was Hans Berliner. He was a <laughs> professor at Carnegie Mellon, famous for his work, original work on computer games, including yeah. Checker and Backgammon and various things. And he offered me a summer job at Carnegie Mellon when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and I worked with some of these AI uh, greats there. I got very lucky. That's uh, amazing. And I got very interested in it and stuck with it ever since way through graduate school and uh, did the undergrad, studied AI, and did the history of AI as an undergrad. Did a great uh, undergrad thesis where I got to work with Seymour Pepper at, uh, at MIT. Wow. And also got to interview people like Alan Newell and Herb Simon and Josh Feigenbaum at, at Stanford, lots of people about their view on, on AI and uh, it was great. So Amazing. I've been interested in it ever since. Fantastic. And tell me about where you did your um, your, yeah. your higher grad. Your higher right. And then yeah. I went to graduate school here in Toronto and got to work with Jeff Hinton. Did early work on neural nets before it was... Uh, before they were cool. <laughs> before they were cool, exactly. <laughs> and autoencoders, in fact, was the <laughs> subject of my thesis. And I've stayed in the field doing machine learning and neural nets ever since. Various kinds of machine learning, all different kinds. Yeah, I've been... Was it... Arizona as a faculty member for a while after doing postdocs in California at, at the Salt and at um, in Pittsburgh at CMU, and uh, then came back to Toronto in 2000. I've been here ever since as a faculty member. Fantastic, and and um, at, at being in Toronto, there's lots of stuff going on. But I want to I want to ask you a little bit about your own work first. Um, probably one of your most cited papers is the the 2015 image description paper. Um, so tell me more about where you feel like attention-based models are, are headed and if you're still interested in that question and where it's going. I think attention-based models are super interesting in the sense that they've been around, like a lot of things have been around for a long time and people always thought it was a, a good idea, but for a while it was everybody thought it was kind of a constraint that you had to throw into your model that would hurt its performance. Yeah. And so the remarkable thing that happened like in a lot of these cases is that people showed how much it actually improves things rather than thinking right. of it as a constraint. And so that was super interesting just as a phenomenon. It also made us think a little bit different, I think, differently about possibly human attention, right? That yeah. attention is, is not just a scarce resource, but it's something that allows you to you know, accelerate and improve your performance. I think that now it's become ubiquitous, right? Attention is all you need is an idea. But I think that there's still a lot to be done there that's in terms of understanding what it is and why it works so well. And potentially we can get some inspiration from human attention again and think about on the cognitive or neuroscience side, what does attention mean? It's equally ill-defined in that space. So uh, right. both of them could help each other, hopefully, <laughs> and define it well and figure out how to use it. So are you finding there are any like interesting sources or pools of thinking in cognitive neuroscience around attention that have been particularly fruitful for applications or furthering thinking? Again, there's lots of ideas about attention, but some of the main questions around it are about uh, expectation mm. really is what it comes down mm -hmm, to. And I think mm -hmm. expectation can be thought of as you know, top-down expectation, like what are you expecting to see in a scene, right? right, right. There's this notion that's been around in cognitive neuroscience and neuroscience in general about predictive coding. And what does predictive mm -hmm. coding actually mean? And, and there's been different schools of thought on this. And I think just recently, again, there's some, some great work showing that it actually perhaps is an important notion and there are ways of teasing it out experimentally. 
And I think also, obviously, it's important for us in building stronger machine learning systems. We have to figure out what we're trying to predict, have top-down information. And so in my own work, I'm very interested in this question of how can we make these predictive models, uh, which are really just one form of feedback models, mm -hmm. right? So you kind of, you might see a scene and that enables you to think about it a little bit differently. And then you go down and have some expectations about what you're seeing in the scene and having your hypothesis give you this top-down information helps you tease out what's actually going on in the scene. And that kind of recurrent process is something that hasn't been explicitly modeled very well in our current deep learning models, and it's something that we're working on currently. Yeah, fantastic. So, so you run a group at the University of Toronto still. Um, tell me about what's really exciting for you these days. What sort of questions are really um, yeah. firing the minds in that group? One of the big questions we're focusing on is how to learn with little data. So I like to think of uh, people talk about big data. Well, I want to do little data right. where it's now we want to say, you know, obviously these models work really well with uh, tons of labeled data. And so one of the challenges is to get by with a few labels. And there's been some great work on this on you know, unsupervised learning is something I worked on for my thesis yeah. and my PhD thesis and been interested ever since. But there's been a lot of interesting twists on this recently that I think are very good ideas. Ideas like what's called self-supervised training, where mm -hmm. you might take a little bit of information out of your input and try to predict it and show that the representations you develop from that are actually useful for other tasks. And we're particularly focused on the idea of how can you learn about new objects quickly. So for example, you might go travel somewhere exotic like Southeast Asia, you have some fruit at some dinner you've never seen before, some weird, you know, spiny thing, and, uh, and you want to go buy it at the market. And somehow you're in this crazy, busy market um, with fried grasshoppers flying out of tins and various <laughs> things. And now you're saying, okay, I want to find my fruit. And right. how can I recognize it? And we're able to do that as humans really well. Yeah. But it's a real challenge for computers. And I think, again, it's something we're making in some good progress in recently and figuring out how to just with a couple examples, really uh, build a good system that can learn to recognize that fruit when it has different spines, different colors, it's partially ripe, occluded, unripe, cluttered, smooshed. exactly, yeah, <laughs> all yeah. those things. Yes. Nice, interesting. Yeah. One of the sort of flavors of the week feels like probabilistic programming. Is that an area that you're interested in? or? So I haven't done much on probabilistic programming. Actually, I think of that as in this particular area, it's one of the alternative approaches in yeah. some ways to doing learning with few examples. And that's not something that I've worked on myself much, but I think it's a very interesting approach. I, there's elements of it I find particularly useful, like where the idea where you do want to identify concrete elements, perhaps, and then be able to reason over those, right? So I think of it as an interesting marriage between probabilistic graphical models mm. and deep learning, right? Where you want to maybe use deep learning to identify what are those discrete elements you want to reason about. And then you want to have uncertainty in there. So the whole right. probabilistic side of it is very interesting to me, right? Is you want to have uncertainty. That's one thing our models are very bad at yeah. still, I think, at knowing when they don't know and being <laughs> able to say so. Um, and so I think that's something that uh, certainly is useful in this uh, in this area and every every part of machine learning. So, so um, let's say I'm a first-year graduate student, and I'm interested in semi-supervised learning, but I sort of don't know where I should start in thinking about this. What, where should, what are the fundamentals that I need to sort of bring into my work? So semi-supervised learning, I think of as a, a bit of a, a nascent field in the sense that for a while there, there was this notion that you either do supervised learning or you do unsupervised learning. Mm. And semi-supervised was, why can't we just combine the best of both? But the truth of it has been, until recently, it didn't work very well. Mm. And even now, it's a question of how well is it really working? <laughs> because, you know, you, you have to have a model that was already working pretty well right. to be able to learn, you know, with the label data to work pretty well. And then 
typically people showed very small gains from the unsupervised component of it. So I think of it as not necessarily what we're doing better on is semi-supervised learning, hmm. but it's really the idea of training a system to be able to learn how to do supervised learning with a little data. Hmm. So it's a little bit more like this idea of meta-learning. Got it. Is more, is more relevant. So I'd study meta-learning, but of course I'd study unsupervised learning and see what are the main ideas in unsupervised learning. And I think the key questions these days that people look at is, again, what I talked about with the idea of auxiliary tasks, like mm. you can do the self-training, mm -hmm. where you train a system in a supervised way, but the system is making up its own labels from the data yeah. itself. So it's still, that's one of the things that we have very good tools for supervised learning, yeah. but, uh, and not as good for unsupervised, because unsupervised, who knows what the objective is. Right. So why don't we just make everything a supervised task, but we just repurpose some of our input as labels. Nice. So I think that's a good idea. In terms of where to look, you know, I think there's obviously the recent papers, but all the recent papers forget to cite anything that's, you know, from beyond a year or two ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, so exactly. there actually is some old work in semi-supervised learning and old work in few-shot learning that you'd want to look, check out as well. Uh, a lot of the good ideas are in, in that, and they've just been rediscovered. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, yeah rediscovery, one <laughs> yeah. of the major themes of work yes. these days. Yeah, and so tell me, as someone, as one of the few people who has uh, done some thinking, even if it was very early in your career around the history of artificial intelligence, what do you wish uh, were some things that people would remember as all this rediscovery happens, or one of the key points about the history of the field that you feel like people should carry around with them? One of the main ideas I found that was most interesting back when I was doing my uh, undergraduate thesis was the question of where does the intelligence come from? There were people like Herb Simon who really believed in a general purpose, general problem right. solver, right? And yeah. then there were other people who thought, no, you really have to develop expertise. Right. right? And, and they won for a while with the whole expert system thing that was the first AI boom. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Hopefully this is where <laughs> just right. the second one about to hit the winner. Um, and so I think the, that idea about how general purpose can be built, like what are the general techniques that we can use that yeah. transfer across multiple things. I think that's a, a key thing to, to think about. And is there some way you can develop expertise that transfers? So I think mm -hmm. that's one of the most interesting mm -hmm. questions these transfer days, learning. right? Is the yeah. transfer learning and can we develop something that is very useful in one task that transfers? And so that's really been what has made deep learning work, right? right. And the whole thing has been about learning representations. Everybody agrees that that's really what it comes down to is we've learned good features. Yeah. Now the question is how far can we push that beyond things like vision and speech and language where high dimensional inputs, finding good features is a key challenge. Is that true in some of these other domains or to what extent is it true? How can we make that work? So that's a great challenge for the field. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the questions that I think the field at large is considering more and more that you are interested in is around fairness. Right. Tell me a little bit about your thinking there. It's an interesting and hard topic in some ways. So I worked on this several years ago now, mm -hmm. back in 2012. We had a group together at uh, Microsoft Research with Cynthia Dwork, uh, Tony Patassi, uh, Omer Reingold, and Moritz Hart, all of us. We were sitting around talking about you know, what the challenge was. You know, they, a lot of people have worked on differential privacy, but that's right. quite different than fairness. And fairness right. is like, you know, how do you not make sure that your machine learning system doesn't discriminate against particular groups. And particularly because it's trained on historical data. So any kind of biases that were in that data will be perpetuated. Coded back in. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you didn't give loans to women in the past, you train up a machine learning system to decide who gets loans, the women will get <laughs> loans in the future. Um, but then we say, okay, that seems bad. How do you quantify how bad is it? Right. What's good? Ooh. Who's it bad to? And how do we decide when is it good? So we had a lot of fun debating 
the whole summer that was like a summer about you know what is the definitions we wrote a paper about definitions and in the field still trying to figure out good definitions and I, we tried to ask saying okay this is really a societal question it's up to public policy people legal policy people you know, society say what is fair right and unfortunately when i talk to those people I've given talks recently to some of those people and they turn around and say no no it's up to you guys to decide this <laughs> the computer scientists have to quantify Buck it we passing. aren't going to quantify that <laughs> so it's still an ongoing question but at least exposing those questions and saying if you agree that this is reasonable like you know one of the key ideas was to move from fairness which was defined as what we call demographic parity like, you know, across the groups, there may be, you might want to equalize the percentage of people getting loans mm -hmm. between males and females. Right. Or maybe that's not quite right because, you know, somehow there's a lot more qualified of group A than group B. So equalizing it is unfair. And so instead you might have a quota system. So this starts to look a lot like quotas right. and affirmative action. And then that has some negative connotations as well. So recently there's other ideas that come up. Like maybe you really do care about being accurate against your historical data. But then if you aren't accurate, when the mistakes that the systems make, those should be balanced between the groups. So that's like a yeah. more refined notion that seems Wait, somehow better. There's always this notion you're going to trade off how accurate the system uh -huh. is versus how unbiased it is. Right. And so you don't want to sacrifice accuracy. Certainly you're in a medical setting. You don't want to, you know, not <laughs> yeah. give people effective treatments <laughs> right. because of what, you know, just because they're in the dominant race. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Um, so it's a question of you know, defining these things in a, in a reasonable way and then making it computationally. And the good thing is that a whole bunch of people in machine learning have gotten interest in it, right? There's, the yeah. field has taken off in terms of the number of papers and tutorials, um, as well as successfully pull in people from these other areas. So it's, it's been very exciting. And, you know, I, I don't think we're very close to coming up with answers in some way. Mm. I think we're starting mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. identify what the key questions are and mm -hmm. ways of operationalizing that and, and saying, okay, here's your machine learning system. We can give you an idea of how fair you are with respect to this particular definition. Yeah. And then try to, you know, make it a more fair. So that's where we are. So, so how, um, how do you think that the field can um, more effectively bring in subject matter experts who have been saying like, no, you guys do it, but like the computer scientists and the AIML experts of the world don't have that expertise. And so the, I mean, the necessity of collaborators becomes even more clear. What, what can be done to bring those people in? So I think there has been some successful attempts. There's conferences that do cut across uh, multiple fields. There's a, something that is called the Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency. Mm -hmm. It used to be a small workshop. Now it's become a whole conference. And that does successfully bring in people from law and philosophy and social science and lots of different areas. And so I think uh, that's a successful instance of this, as well as most major conferences in machine learning have workshops on the topic where those people are invited to speak and they, they do participate. And so I think that that's all good. I mean, there's a lot of issues still about, you know, how to bring this forward in terms of public policy and mm, how do we mm -hmm. actually carry it out Applicability. and yeah, make it applicable. There's a real problem from a machine learning practitioner point of view that there's not great data sets out there. We invented our own data sets in some ways and made synthetic versions of them that were fair or not fair, like, you know, identify what is the very person that we want or the group of people we want to be fair to. Like, right. Like women in the loans example was actually one of the examples mm. in, our, in our first papers. So 
I think that most of the field has this history of saying once you identify some benchmarks and people can really fairly, so, so to speak, compare yeah, their, right, right. their methods against it, then yeah. we start to feel like we're making real progress. And so right. I think that still has to happen yeah. in this domain. Yeah, and with, with benchmarks changing as fluidly as the definitions, right, it becomes impossible. Exactly. Everybody uses what's called the compass data set these mm -hmm. days, which is mm -hmm. about risk assessment for right. uh, people recidivism, in the legal system, recidivism, exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's a limited data set, and people have different versions right. of it, and we don't have great information. You know, it's a start, but obviously in the legal setting, there's many more, and in corporate settings, there's a ton of right. yeah, relevant right. data. Right. Yeah. But as always, it's hard to release data, so that's an ongoing problem. Yeah. And um, I wanted to sort of uh, switch tacks a little bit and talk about the Vector Institute, of which um, you are one of the co-founders yes. and has grown like gangbusters over the last couple of years. Tell me a little bit about the, the foundations and how you've seen it evolve. So Vector started, I guess it was about September of years ago now, and a couple local businessmen, Tommy Putenin and uh, Jordan Jacobs, part of a small startup company here in Toronto. They approached uh, me and then got Jeff involved and said we should really start an institute. And this wasn't the first thing. A lot of people were talking about, you know, how are we going to accelerate the growth of AI in uh, Canada? And so with Tommy and Jordan, we tried a number of different avenues. We went to the universities. That was slow. <laughs> <laughs> Thought about granting agencies, also slow. And so they're more on the business side. They said, well, let's just jump on it and get the business community going on this. And they also brought in a real powerhouse of a guy, Ed Clark, who mm -hmm. was the CEO of uh, TD Bank, and also you know, had worked in the government for a while, so he knew a lot of people there. And he jumped on the idea. He really liked the idea. And he helped us really quickly get a, a lot of people on board. So we Fantastic. got funding from the provincial government, joined forces with uh, folks in Montreal and Edmonton, and got federal funding, and then also uh, got a lot of companies to contribute with the notion that it was had a real Canadian side to it. So we would, the companies could only join if they had an engineering presence here in Toronto and in Ontario. Nice. Um, and so it happened all very quickly. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, by end of March last year, we launched and moved into our new space really in January. And we've grown a lot. I mean, a lot of the people are uh, students, postdocs, faculty members at universities, affiliated universities. So Vector is an independent nonprofit, but affiliated with a lot of the universities and hospitals, institutions. And so faculty members join that way. But one of the main ideas was that we wanted to grow quickly. And it was hard to do that given, you know, university departments and how yeah. things work. We couldn't just hire a bunch of machine learning <laughs> people. A large part of the funding is devoted to hiring research scientists. And those are people who have full-time employment at Vector, nice. but they're effectively university faculty. They can get uh, appointments to faculty, they can supervise students. One of the main aims was to grow the talent pool, working on and graduating uh, yeah, yeah. with degrees in machine learning and AI, and so that's helping us do that. So it's been great. It's growing really quickly. A lot of balls in the air, a lot of <laughs> juggling going on. To um, say the least. But it's we've also got some great staff around to, to make things go much smoother, and so it's a really... Uh, it's a functioning organization, so the balls are, uh, the juggling hasn't, uh, the juggling hasn't isn't slowing down slowing anytime down, soon. The, uh, we haven't dropped a lot of balls. That's fantastic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and since, and since Vector started, we've seen things like the Turing and Prairie, all these, all these other organizations start up and, and the sort of, um, weird smoosh that is the gray zone between academia and industry continues to That's get right. larger. Um, what do you think we're going to see in terms of, uh, 
changes for uh, where the foundational research gets done in the future? You know, I've stuck it out in university here for many years. So I'm a firm believer that we have to keep the university strong, you mm. know, because I do think that the model of having students and, and postdocs, it's a really a strong model, enables, you know, students to learn and to develop as researchers in a very natural way. And I think it's worked, you know, really well for the field. And that's why I've stuck with it. I think it's really fun to work with the students and they're, you know, always coming up with new ideas and very productive and you get to work with them not just for a year or two like you might right. in a master's or an internship or like a residency program, but something that's extended, right? Work with them for five or six years yeah. and it's a lot of fun and you see them develop and become independent, full-fledged researchers. So that's a model we, I don't think we should give up. And so I really think we should keep the university model strong and that ties with industry can continue, right? I think that people doing these part-time appointments, even though people are stretched way too thin <laughs> these know, days, right? I still think that allowing the industry and the companies to grow is also important as long as they can contribute to the research and bring in some interesting applied problems, right? I think all of that is really good for the field as well. It's a question of maintaining it all. And, and I really think it's up to the companies to recognize this and say, okay, we're going to figure out ways to sponsor faculty members and keep faculty members as faculty members if they're half-time or if they're more than half-time, I think, it, at the company, then it's very hard to be you yeah. know, a, a contributing faculty member. It's a, it takes a lot, a lot of effort. But around half-time, you can still do a lot of work as a faculty member and also contribute to the company. So I think that model and the also, in general, the companies putting money back into the university and sponsoring chairs and that type of thing at mm. the university is a great way to keep the talent pool flowing, which is really what it's, what it's about at some level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so as a director of research for Vector, what are you excited about that's coming out of the Institute in the next couple of months or the rest of this year? I feel like we've gathered a really strong team, and some of these people are already at, at local universities, but I think it's really exciting all the new people we've brought on board, right? So in the last, I must say, in like in at the University of Toronto, we hired one single faculty member in machine learning every seven or eight years. Now we have, in Toronto alone, we have about, depending on how you count it, 10 machine learning faculty. I'm including in that these research scientists at Vector, right? Because mm -hmm. they're out mm -hmm. in Toronto. But the bigger community, right, across Ontario, and including all these other universities like Waterloo and Guelph and these other universities that have uh, strong machine learning people, that's really exciting to bring these people together. So I'm very excited to have this group together and to have uh, new hires that we've brought in, people doing things like chemistry, physics, yeah. and exciting work in robotics. I mean, all these new faculty members, and, and especially health. So health is an area that that Vector has a strong presence in uh, faculty members and research scientists doing work in this area. So I think that's exciting, seeing these new people coming in and contributing and bringing in their new postdocs and students, right? So it's just this huge growth of multidisciplinary research. And so I think it's, it's super exciting to see what's going to come out of it. One thing we're hoping to do is to develop a few challenges, like a few key problems mm. that we'll work on as a group. Nice. So to go beyond what you might do as a standard faculty member where you work with your research group and some collaborations with other faculty members in their groups and try to do something that's a little bit larger and have some challenges. So that's what we're going to work on identifying in the next year or so to, that as, sounds uh, amazing. as vector projects. Great. Well, we'll have to have you back on to tell us what the first ones are. Okay. Richard Zemmel, Professor of Computer Science at the University of Toronto and Research Director at the Vector Institute, also in Toronto. Well, that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. Tune in next episode.